All right. Um, before I tell you where to turn, I have a question because um, if I tell you where to turn, I know that some of you are cheaters and you'll go look up the answer. Um, because you're like, man, I mean, that's what I would do, right? That, that you always try to race and find out what they're saying. Like, I, w- I would do that growing up. This, the, the pastor would give us the outline, and so I'd go start trying to pre-fill the, the, the blanks and see if he lined up with where I thought he should go. And so I, I want to ask you a question first, because um, just not, not saying, I should say that different. Maybe you're not like me. Maybe you don't just inherently go try to find the answer. But, so... Forgive me if that offended you. I shouldn't have said it that way. But um, it, it, raise your hand um, if you know who the, the first um, martyr was, his name. Right? Okay, that's, that's actually good. Um, because it, it's easier if you don't know, because then you don't have to, you, you might have a tendency to listen, read his story the same way. Um, and so it's good if you can't recall his name. And you might, once we say it, you're probably like, oh, okay, I got it. But, but I wanna, we're going to talk about that story today as we're working through this, this series, Meet Jesus This Spring. We, we, I've been saying we're going to be in Luke's and then Acts. This, we're now in Acts. Okay, this is the, the first week kind of in that transition. And so uh, previously everything had been Jesus meeting this certain person or like last week was Jesus meets Zacchaeus okay well now it's Jesus for certain types of people because when we see those sermons and we see these um, just narratives unfold in the book of Acts we see that it's not Jesus meeting people but it's the first church showing how that Jesus is for certain groups of people and and so we can relate to it that way and so the the first one we get is Acts chapter 7 if you want to turn there um, we're going to be in the whole, ta- whole chapter of Acts 7, but, but don't worry, we're not going to read all 60 verses at one time. Um, but we're, we're seeing that in this passage, we see Jesus for the self-righteous. And, and inherently, that's a little, a little hard sometimes to see, because when we hear self-righteous, we might immediately go back, or you might immediately go back to this time where um, people have used that in negative senses, but we just want to be honest today in looking at this, and we're looking at the, the story of Stephen. That's the answer. The first martyr is Stephen that we have that Luke has recorded, um, and so we, I just want to read part of this to kind of give a, a little context, and then we'll go back and forth from the end and pick up pieces as we go. So if you will, um, we're going to start in verse 48. It's kind of a weird place, kind of a weird section as far as probably where you're um, the Bible has it divided up. We're going to read 48 through the end of the chapter, verse 60, and then we'll continue. So in, in Acts 7, verse 48, this is Stephen talking, and he says, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of these prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. 
And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold their sins against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. If you will pray with me as we ask the Spirit just to guide us through our time here today. Father God, we, we open your truth. God, we just, God, just pray and just, and just beg that you would change our hearts. God, that we would handle your truth accurately. God, that I would proclaim your truth accurately and effectively. God, that we would be cut to our hearts. God, that we'd be exposed by your truth so that you might rebuild us and shape us how you how you've planned for our lives. God, I just pray that today your spirit would be felt in our lives just as a, a group here together and then individually, God, that our lives would be changed and it would be a change that's noticeable to those who live and work around us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. And so we get this pretty, it's, it's kind of a crazy story, and, and, and it's exciting in a sense. I hate saying exciting because it's the story of a guy getting stoned, and we don't want to go into all the details of that. You can use your own imagination on that. But what's amazing in this story is, is as we go through this chapter, is what Stephen is doing is he's actually giving a brilliant defense. And, and we'll see that as we progress a little further in this, but he's giving a defense of the charges that were brought against him. If we go into Acts 6... You see that these people, he was preaching, he was proclaiming the word, and they didn't like it, and so they brought false charges, because that's what happened. The, the Sanhedrin here, these Jewish leaders, they, they had a track record of giving false witnesses, or, or getting people to come in, and that's what, and that's what had happened with Stephen. They, they've given this false witness about him, that he's throwing out Moses, that he's undermining Moses, and that he's against Moses, that he's against the law. And so chapter 7, Luke records his defense of those charges. And what's interesting about this, and one, you can see that he got a negative response. That's pretty clear. Now you, can, you can read the end of that, and, and they didn't accept his defense at all. And so, and, and really you can see that, we, we think of this and think, man, this is a long chapter. But, but in reality, you can see that, and most theologians will say this, that, that he probably got cut off. Like, there was probably this point to where they'd had enough, and they just cut him off, and that's when they drug him out of town. Like, he wasn't finished. They, they just, they'd heard enough. And so then that's what they would do. They would just kind of riot or get loud. He can't talk anymore. They drag him out, and they stone him. And so he's answering these charges. So there's a reason why he did this. And when we look at this chapter and just kind of lay it open and see what, what it takes, we realize that there's really two types of people that are represented. There's, there's those that, that we're calling self-righteous, that, that even if it's an unfounded thing, it's found within themselves. Everything, their value, their identity, everything is about them, what they do. Or you have on the other side someone that's gospel-centered. And, and a lot of times now, the, this idea of being gospel-centered is kind of cliche in a sense in some places, but if you've followed anything with our election, which is kind of interesting, that, and I was saying about this this morning when I was going through that you have a bunch of evangelical people now that are coming out saying with, with the way the, the election, our presidential primaries and stuff are happening, that there's people coming out and saying, don't call me evangelical, call me gospel. Because they're trying to distinguish between what they actually believe and what maybe society says is Christian or evangelical. Because there's a difference. 
And that's exactly what we see here. We see that Stephen is kind of is separated out by what he believes the truth is. And so we need to look at both sides of that. If we're really going to see what's going on here, if we're really going to see that, we need to see that, that this story is about Jesus for the self-righteous, even when he's actually not mentioned by name. And, and we'll see that. And there's, there's, there's time and time again, there's multiple times in Acts where Jesus is talked about, but he's not mentioned. But see, he's the only person really in history that you can do that. That you can talk about who, Jesus and not mention his name. People know. Because that's just who he is. And so, as we look at this, the first thing we need to see about, and, and what I want you to do as we're going through this, is kind of think through in your mind, follow along with me as we go through this to see which side you're kind of identified with. And, and it's not always the same. I don't, I don't want to paint that picture on you that you're always either self-righteous or gospel. There's, there's ebbs and flows. But when we look at this, we'll realize that, that we're guilty of some of these things of the self-righteous people. And we need to be aware of that, and that's a positive thing. Because we can see that, and we can see that. We can then apply the gospel to ourselves. We can preach that truth and then be shaped by the gospel instead of by our actions. And so the, the first thing we need to see about self-righteous people is that they forget the historical perspective. They forget the historical perspective. And that's what Stephen starts with. If we go back to the beginning of chapter 7, really verses 1 through 50 are Stephen's main defense. And what he does is he gives them, and this kind of sets him apart from when Peter's speaking, even when Paul has to give a defense when, when he's going through um, his trials. Both of them, Peter and Paul, they talk about what happened in their life. Paul's big on, this is what I received, this is what happened in my life. Stephen doesn't do that. Stephen gives us more of a biblical theology. He says, this isn't what happened to me, this is what happened. He gives us the overall picture, he gives us the biblical storyline of what's happening, and to do so, he uses three main characters from the Old Testament that they would have all been familiar with. And it's critical that we see what he's saying by bringing up these specific three people. And, and to set things up, Look at verse 2 real quick. He said, and Stephen said, okay, so the high priest says, verse 1, are these things so? So, okay, here's the charges, are these so? And he says, and Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. We need to see that first because he's setting up the, the, the self-righteous mindset to all of a sudden be at odds because he doesn't give them their titles. He doesn't he doesn't tell them, he doesn't call them by their titles, because all these men in the Sanhedrin, all these in this court would have had titles, but he just calls them brothers and fathers. He doesn't give them that. He's pulling them down to the level that, hey, you're just people. You're people, and this is what's happening. And so he uses Abraham first. He says, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And so he's bringing in now, he's okay, so he's drawing them back all the way to the beginning. Here's Abraham, the, the, the man that received the covenant, the promise of God to that he would be a nation of all people, that his descendants would be like the stars. And if we think about it, I, I, I kind of long to go maybe out in the desert somewhere and actually, well, that was weird, sorry, but actually see the stars. Because here, even when we look at it, we're not in a big metropolitan area, but there's still enough light around us that it kind of drowns out the stars. But think about that for a second, that Abraham, when he got this promise and that his descendants would be like the stars, can you imagine the sky that he saw? There's, there's no artificial light, maybe some fire around, but can you imagine if you've seen some of the pictures that you would have? I had a friend um, 
He's, he's a worship leader at the Austin Suns, Justin Cofield. And he went to Jordan. And I remember one time, that he, that's what he was saying. He's like, when he was out in the desert in Jordan, very close to where all of this happened, he said the stars were amazing. Because we don't see that. So Stephen's drawing back to this, saying, hey, do you remember Abraham? We've got to go back to the beginning. And that's how he starts his defense of, did he actually go away from the laws of Moses? He doesn't start there. He starts with Abraham. And then look at verse Verse 7 and 8, he says, and this is Judge, this is um, God saying, what really six, give us context. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and inflict them for 400 years. That's Stephen, he's reminding them of, here's Egypt. God's people, even though they've been promised a land, they're going to be sojourners, going to be enslaved by people 400 years. And then 7, verse 7, he says, but I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And then verse 8 is the critical one. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And what he's setting in place there is he's showing this idea of the first sign where these people that he's talking to have understood, they would have understood the covenant. They've understood the sign, the, the circumcision. It's very, that's their identity. And what we need to understand about using Abraham is that these people had taken that sign that Stephen is bringing out, that taken that sign and elevated it beyond the reality. That, that their rituals and their, their worship in that sense had become greater than the actual reality of who they were as God's chosen people. They'd replaced what they did for the reality of that. And actually, um, Warren Wiersbe uh, comments and says it this way, that they confused the physical descent of being from Abraham, the physical descent with the spiritual experience. The, and so bringing all the way back to Abraham gives us this understanding that it's not about the physical descent. Yes, it was promised. Yes, it was this. But he was given so much more. And so he sets them up to where he can then come back and say, you stiff-necked people. In, in, in the later part of it. So he's saying, here's what's happened with Abraham. And then he moves into Joseph. In verse 9, he says, And the patriarchs, those are the, the leader of the twelve tribe, the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. So now he trans, transitions into the next person. This is Joseph now. A lot of times we wouldn't go to Joseph. It's kind of an odd thing, right? We would go to maybe David. Like, let's go. It's Joseph. Right? So Joseph, but he's connecting this story with Egypt and understanding what's going to be happening. And so we see that God was with him. And that's really the first place we need to pause and kind of apply this to our lives. That, that I can't think of a time. I have a sister. We always didn't get along. But as far as I know, she never tried to sell me. Right? She never tried to completely get rid of me. And throw me out. And so when we look at this, that they were jealous of Joseph. Remember, he was the youngest one. He was the favorite, though. And he had these dreams. And if you go back, if you know the story, he had this dream where he was going, they were going to be bowing down to him. And they didn't like that. And so what they do? They sold him into slavery. They said, fine, we can get rid of you. We outnumber you. So they sold him. And they told their father a lie about what had happened to him, brought him back his coat. And then he ends up in Egypt. But God was with him. And that's where we need to understand here. That's where we can apply that. That it doesn't matter what's happening in your life. God is with you. This, this week, I have been, the, the, probably the biggest time in 
our, our church history, I, I feel weird saying church history because we don't have a lot of history, but I guess it's still history. The, the, this last week has probably been the biggest part of where talking to people who are just struggling in life. Just struggling. And, and so when I read this, even this morning, it's like when it says, but God was with him, we need to understand that. That if you are a child of God, that if you've submitted your life to Christ, he's with you. That he sustains you. That he's sovereign over all. We cannot forget that. It doesn't matter if it's in sickness or in death or there's just hard times. That he is with you, sustaining you. And it's actually in the hard times that our faith is strengthened because when we're at the end of everything that we have, we realize that he's still with us. Just as he was with Joseph. And then in verse 13 and 14, there's a critical part to understand about why Stephen used Joseph and then how we can bring that into Jesus. And on the second visit, remember there was a famine in their land, so they go to Egypt. They don't know who Joseph is the first time they go. And he says, bring back everyone. And he gives them grain. He says, on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. Okay, and so what we need to understand that is the first time they understood who Joseph was, they rejected him. They sold him into slavery. The second time, they accepted him. See, it wasn't the first time, and we need to understand that. And if you want to fact, if you're a person that likes fact-checking the, the Bible and stuff like that, you're, you're going to, if you go to the Old Testament, you look at this story, you're, you're going to find a discrepancy in Stephen's. Because the, the last part of verse 14, he says 75 persons in all. The other accounts say 70. You know, uh oh, can he not count? What's going on here? But but you can you can go research that for yourself. But but it's all about who um, the the Bible the scripture that Stephen was using. He was using the Greek, and in the Greek they counted the grandchildren. There was five grandchildren, and it's worked out. You can find that for yourself if you want to do a little study there. You can go fact check me as well. But that's kind of where it happens that that it's known that it's different, but it's different because of the source that he was using. Added added grandchildren in that weren't counted in the seventy originally. And so they, they didn't accept Joseph. They accepted him in the second time. And then he switches to the main accusation. So see, he's setting up what's happening, and then we get to Moses. And then Moses, in verse 17, he says, but at this time, as the time of promise, he connects it all back. That's, that's where you kind of get the biblical theology. He's connecting the story. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied it in Egypt until there was a, arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph, and he dealt shrewdly with his people. Okay? And so what, what's happening there is now comes the oppression. Joseph was known, it was good times, and then there was a different Pharaoh, and as the old goes is whatever the Pharaoh decides goes, and all of a sudden he dealt shrewdly. He's the one that realized, wait a second, there's a lot of these people here, and if they actually wisen up, they might do something. So in walks Moses eventually in the story. And then when we look at this, we need to realize that if you look over in verse 35, we're going to skip a few a little bit. In verse 35, he said, this Moses, so he's just telling the story of Moses, said this Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of angel who appeared to him out of the bush. And so what he's saying there is that these people, they rejected. So he's going back. Who rejected? It was the nation of Israel. They rejected him. You actually see that in verse um, 
27 and 28 and 29. That's the story where or Peter, or, excuse me, Stephen recounts Moses killing the Egyptian because he was oppressing the people, and they're like, oh, what, are you going to kill us like that guy? And so what's he do? He flees. He flees. And so the first time that Moses appeared to the people, they rejected him, just like Joseph. And the second time, they welcome him in. But this is where we're kind of going to go verse by verse for a second because this is really an, an interesting turn in the story because this is where it, it, Stevens, he's gaining momentum, right? He's in the charge now. You can kind of see him. You, you, I can picture him getting kind of emotional, getting connected because this is what's happening. And so he's in verse 36. This man led them out of, out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea. Remember, he parted the Red Sea in the wilderness for 40 years. They were fed by God. Amazing things happening. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise you up, raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness when the angel spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers and received living oracles to give to us. So he's saying this is the same Moses, got the law that you're saying I'm going against. And then what's he say in verse 39? Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside in their hearts and they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not, we do not know what has become of him. And then verse 41, and they made a calf in those days and they offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the words of their hands, but God turned away and gave them over to their worship the host of heaven, as it was written in the book of the prophets. And so he kind of gives this, it's a real, it's a condensed version. There's a lot going on there. And but what you need to understand in that is that they'd once rejected him, the second time they welcomed him, only to just go away to their own self. And that's where we see that these are really just self-righteous people, but he's connecting those that have charged him with their fathers before. He's connecting all of that as here's what's happened. And what we need to understand in that is how quickly the hearts of men are turned away to their self. Like, they'd seen all of this. We like to say, give us a sign so I can have faith. I don't, I don't think we really would go that. If we look at what's happened, they see a sea parted. Right? There's a pillar of fire and cloud leading them. They're getting food every day from who knows where, from God. Yet as soon as they can... They make, a worship, they make an idol. And I think we would do the same thing if we're honest. Even if we saw this amazing thing, somehow at some point we would turn that and say, well, look what I can do. Because the heart of man is selfish by nature. Warren Wiersbe describes this whole pattern as from the, in the outward form, they were worshiping Jehovah. But in their hearts, they were worshiping foreign gods. So outwardly, they were doing the things. If we look at the nation, they were worshiping, they were going to the temple, they were doing all this stuff, but inwardly they were still worshiping the idols, the foreign gods. And so we need to see that so often and so quickly the self-righteous person forgets the historical perspective. They forget what God has been doing, and then somehow they turn it to themselves. And then all of a sudden it doesn't matter what's happening. They, they, they're guilty of what I believe is C.S. Lewis that called it a, of chronological snobbery. Right? They think all of a sudden that we're, we've now arrived, and so it doesn't matter the history. And that's what these people are doing with Stephen. They're saying, well, how, you've forgotten the law of Moses because he's proclaiming Christ. And the whole time he's saying, no, you just don't understand who Christ is because you're lost in the rituals. They had forgotten the historical perspective. They'd forgotten what God was doing. They'd forgotten of the one son of man that was promised to Abraham the whole time. 
And that leads to the next natural thing that self-righteous people do is they resist correction. They resist correction. That gets us to the passage that we started at in in verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in your heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. You always resist the correction. This is really the climax, right? He, he has reached the climax. He's at it. You can see him. He's going for it. The climax of the defense because they had failed to realize the reality of who God was well, as your fathers did. The second part of verse 51 is critical. As your fathers did, so do you. Like you're no different than the nation of Israel always was. what he's saying. And that doesn't go over so well, right? Because you see verse 54. They heard these things. They were enraged. They ground their teeth. I don't, know, I don't know how mad you have to be to grind your teeth, but it's, I don't know that I've ever been there. They're just, they can't understand it. They, they, they act like little children in verse 57, right? They said, cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears. It's like they, you can see them like closing their ears like, I'm not listening to you, right? That's what's happening because they can't go there because they're, they're worried about their self. They're worried about what they're doing, and they've forgotten that the correction is coming is what's supposed to happen. They resist that correction. He described them as the same way their fathers were. They're saying that you're continuing this this generational sin, if you will. And that's what verse 52 says. Which of these prophets did your fathers not persecute? Now, here's all the people that God has said. You can add in all the prophets. Which one did your people not, your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced before in the coming of the righteous one. There's where Jesus is mentioned, right? He's the righteous one. That's why it's capitalized whom you have now betrayed and murdered. So he's saying, your fathers murdered and betrayed the prophets. Now you just did it to the righteous one. The exact same thing. Nothing's happened. He said, you're continuing on the generational sin, and we need to be aware of that, that so many times you can look back through our families and see the exact same selfishness and self-righteousness happening generation after generation after generation because we're not willing to accept the correction of the Lord. And at some point, someone has to step out and someone has to value the word and the truth enough to stand up and say, no more. To say, no, that's what's happened. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to focus. I'm going to set myself on the truth of God. And someone at some point has to be willing to do that. But if you continue to worship yourself in the sense of being self-righteous and thinking that it's your actions that get that to you, it's just going to be a continual pattern. It might present itself differently, but it's going to be a self-righteousness that leads to destruction and in a wake of harm in your path. And you see that in verse 54. Then you become that way. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged. A, self, a truly self-righteous person, when they're corrected, they get mad. They get mad because how dare you challenge me? Like, I've, I've got this figured out. Understand what I'm doing. You don't know my circumstance. Right? Have you ever thought that? When someone's trying to tell you, hey, you're kind of going off, and you're like, you don't know my circumstance. You're not walking in my shoes. Like, how dare you judge me? Well, you're the one that's doing all those things. Because oftentimes, if you've been in that, what they're pointing out, what people are pointing out to you is the actual the truth. You just are resisting seeing that because your self-righteousness is clouding that judgment. Just as these people that were putting Stephen on trial were doing. They didn't understand it because they couldn't get out of their own self. And so what you need to ask yourself at this point to determine, do you have that tendency for self-righteousness? Do you forget the historical perspective 
of God having a storyline of redemption that's been pointing to Christ. And then do you realize the, the amazing blessing that we have that we can look back on it? Like We're not looking forward to the promise. We can look back and say, that's it. That happened so that I might live. Do you resist correction? I'm not just talking about someone telling you that you're wrong. I'm talking about someone coming to you with the word and the gospel and saying, look, you need to repent because this is what you're doing. You're selfish or you're a liar. You're self-serving because none of those are characteristics of God's children. If you're empowered by the gospel, that's not going to be a characteristic. That's not listed in the fruit of the Spirit. So do you resist that correction? Because if you do, then you need to, to come to this realization that maybe you are stuck in this cycle of self-righteous sin. And thanks be to God that he gives us his truth so that we can see that, that we're not left on our own. But there is hope. That's the thing about Christianity that's amazing, right? That, that it's, the one, it's the one world religion that gives hope outside of the person right? That, that we don't hope in ourselves. We hope in someone else. That's the only, that's the major difference. We hope in Christ. And so the gospel-centered person rests in Christ, right? You, you rest in Christ. That sounds simple, but look, that's exactly what Stephen did. Look at verse 55. But he, full of the Spirit, so when you understand this, when you see what's happening, we've got the Spirit within us to, to guide us to instruct, and he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Right? What an amazing thing that he sees the reality of what Jesus said was going to happen. The Spirit allowed him to see that. And he said what? Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So, so look at what's just happened. He said, and you killed, they killed those denounced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, which you've now murdered. So he's saying, you've murdered the righteous one. They would have known who he's talking about. They would have known he's talking about Jesus. And then he says, look, I see the Son of Man. This is the only time outside of Jesus that someone uses Son of Man. Stephen and Jesus, the only ones that use Son of Man. Standing at the right hand of God. So what he's saying there is what Jesus said would happen, I'm seeing it right now. Because of the Spirit, I'm seeing this. And that's what enraged them. Because then all of a sudden, you have to own up to that. Like, all of a sudden, it's, it's clear. And so he's looking at this because of the Spirit empowering. He's not just thinking this. It's the Spirit within him. He sees Jesus around. He says, everything that Jesus said would happen that you say is not going to happen, I'm looking at it right now. And that enrages them. And then what happens? They cast him out of the city. And they laid their garments at the feet of Saul. We'll talk about Saul in, in a second. Because it's, it's critical to understand, I think, him being here. And as they were stoning Stephen, so it's, it's happening now. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He's resting in Christ. That he's going through something that most of us can't imagine happening. There's not a positive spin you can put on this. And he says, receive my spirit. And look at, look at verse 60. This is amazing. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Doesn't it sound eerily simil similar to Jesus on the cross? Forgive them, they know not what they do. Don't hold it against them. And only someone that's truly resting in the gospel of Jesus Christ can say that. Because if you're any part resting on you, you're not, you're not going there. You're going to save yourself. 
You're worried about yourself. But you can see this. What he does there is don't hold their sins against them. And if you look back on the history of people that have been martyred, there's, it's this thing over and over and over again of people praying for the people that are killing them. That seems foreign to people. I, I, I want to think that I would have the faith to do that. But you only will if you're resting in Christ. No other way makes sense because you realize that there's something greater, that there's something better, that this isn't the end of everything. Because if there's nothing greater than this, then you're going to fight and you're going to claw no matter what people are doing. And we see persecution happening over and over again. How can all the people that, that ISIS is persecuting just walk calmly on the beach? Because they realize there's something better. That, okay, it doesn't matter. But we should be worried. What does truth say? That we should be worried about the one that can kill the spirit. Right? If we truly are gospel-centered, we're going to rest in Christ. We're going to seek after him. Because that's the only way that we can be explained. That's the only way life can make sense. And so the, the reason I wanted to bring up Saul here is because I have to think that when, when Saul had his encounter with Christ, he says, why do you persecute me? You have, I have to think that he went back to this moment. Right? Because the next chapter, what is it? Saul ravages the church. Saul gets one chapter of destruction and the rest is God using him for his glory. Right? But you have to think that when he was converted, that he had to go back to this at some point, sitting there, seeing Stephen Stone saying, don't hold it against him. Because he's the realization of that. Because if God would have held it against, Saul would have been guilty as everyone else, right? So we wouldn't have had Paul. So really, Paul's the answer of Stephen's prayer. Don't hold it against him. Okay, I'm not going to hold it against him. I'm just going to call him to go to the Gentiles, right? And from this point on, that's what happens. All of a sudden now, everything, it goes to the rest of the world. And so Stephen's prayer is like the catalyst that God uses to call people to himself, to send Paul to the Gentiles. And, and thankfully, because we're recipients of that, right? You've got to think that, that Paul went back to this, seeing Stephen there. It's, it's not something you would forget, Right? Even in, in those times where this was common, you're not going to forget that. The guy going to his knees, being stoned, saying, you know, don't hold it against him. It's amazing, right? That has to be a huge testimony. And that's what the world around looks for us. To see when, when people are lying, cheating, swindling us, how do we react? Do we take offense to it? Or are we quick to offer grace because we've been given grace? And so when we look at all of this, an easy way to wrap this up is that, that Jesus is, is for the self-righteous because he takes away that need. That there's not that need within us anymore to save ourselves. Why? Because he did it. There's not a need to gain our identity through any means possible because our identity rests in Christ. We don't have to seek comfort and security by any means because we have it in Him ultimately. That's where we, it's okay to be gospel-centered in, in Jesus because you realize that it's not about you anymore. And that's what makes this story so amazing. That's why Jesus can be for the self-righteous because He replaces all the desires and wants of a self-righteous person that they find in themselves with Himself. He takes all the sin on Himself and He gives us His righteousness. 
prior to us changing ourselves. So when we look at this and we live our lives, we don't have to be, we don't have to take care of ourselves in the sense of ultimate because he's done that for us. And so I pray and I, and I plead with God all the time that he would make us people that just rest in him, that seek after him. It doesn't matter what's happening. And I know, I don't know of everyone in here and what's happening, but I know there's, there's plenty of people that are struggling and they're searching for answers and understanding that can only be answered in Christ. Because we don't have to find these answers now. We lean on Him. We lean on Him and everything else fades away. And I pray that that's the people that we are. And I pray that that's the people that, that, that everyone around us sees us to be. Because when we understand that, that's when God is glorified. And that's when people see something that's different, radically different, and they're drawn to that. They're not drawn to people being self-righteous because they can get that anywhere. But to see people deny themselves and serve others when they're being hurt by them, our, our culture can't explain that. And they desperately try, so what do they do? They seek after it. They ask questions. They want to know. And that's when you can point them to the ultimate reality that it doesn't matter what we do because we're secure in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you that, that we don't have to do it ourselves, God, that we don't have to work hard, that we don't have to save ourselves. God, I just thank you that, that my salvation comfort, security, identity is not found in my actions, God, but in your Son, Jesus Christ. God, I just pray that we would be people that realize that we are in a long line of faithful people who you have called to yourself and adopted of sons and daughters, that we would remember that we haven't arrived at a point that you haven't gone already. God, that we would be in relationships where we can receive correction. That we would correct others through your gospel and that we would ultimately rest in your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.